Good evening, everyone, and welcome. We are so glad to host you for our third session in this GROW course, God's Biographers Reading the Gospels as Historical Witness with Rick Watts. Thanks for coming. Uh, who's been to all three so far the last few weeks? Great. And who's been to two out of three? Awesome. Who's here for the first time? Good stuff. Right on. This is great. Thanks for coming. Uh, we've never done anything like this before in our church, uh, in the sense of a course like this over the span of three weeks, and it's great to come together and to learn and to, and to grow together, and that's what this is all about as community. And it's great that we can be, uh, have a space to be friendly with one another as well, right? We don't take these spaces for granted, so thanks for making time and prioritizing this uh, today. Going to hand the floor over to Rick in just a moment, but just a few housekeeping uh, details before we begin. Uh, if you're new or newer here, my name is Luke. I'm on our pastoral team. There's a few others in the room here as well that serve in the community. And uh, if there's any questions that you have, please come and chat with me. I'd love to make sure you have everything you need as you're enjoying tonight. And uh, if you need the restroom, uh, they're just down the hallway, uh, this, this direction, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, if you need a glass of water as well, I can help you with that. I'll just be back in the, in the sound booth. I uh, want to talk a little bit about the shape of tonight. It's uh, really quite simple. Uh, Rick's going to share uh, probably till about 8 o'clock. Then we'll take um, about 10-minute break, 7-10 minute break, and then come back and have time for Q&A. And as we do that and have Q&A, you, uh, you can feel free to uh, either email in or text in your questions. And, and once Rick begins, I'll put that information up on the slides. And, uh, and please send those questions along, and then we will we'll ask them, them, them all together, and I'll have some questions prepared for, for Rick as well. Uh, the power of these evenings is not just uh, what Rick's prepared in terms of material, but it's the engagement back and forth. So you've said several times there's really no questions that aren't allowed. We want any kind of questions, so please, please feel free to ask them. Send them to me, text or email, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Uh, last week, we just pointed out a couple of resources for people that would be more interested after this if you don't have access to, to resources. Uh, and a few books that will just hold up and point in your direction that, um, that come out of Rick's world and some people that know uh, Rick well, absolutely. Which is, um, first, the, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Great book. Um, which is really, if you're going to have any kind of uh, tool on your shelf, this is a good first one to have. Uh, Gordon Fee and others put this together, and Gordon Fee was one of Rick's professors. So you can blame Gordon for everything uh, that Rick says. But no, it's a wonderful text, and I really encourage you to take a look at that. I'm going to put these on the front row. You can leaf through them if you want to. Mentioned this last week. If you're looking for a commentary set uh, that's helpful, there's a whole commentary set by N.T. Wright. Uh, called the New Testament for Everyone. This is the Gospel of Luke for Everyone, and it's a great introduction as you're reading the Bible along. That's, that's helpful. Uh, several on our team do use that. Uh, and then for some of what we've gone down in terms of Jesus in his Jewish background and the story of Israel, N.T. writes The Challenge of Jesus. If you haven't got into any of that background, this is a really good uh, one to start with. And Rick has mentioned some other uh, larger academic texts as well, but this is a great introduction, so I'd recommend that. And then the last one, um, the, a number of years ago, Rick was a part, actually, of a very special project, which was putting together uh, the most recent New International Version Study Bible. And uh, so this is the NIV Study Bible. It was printed in 2015. And if you go to the Gospel of Mark, you will find that uh, Dr. Rick Watts provided the commentary notes for it. So we're very blessed to have Rick and Katie in our community in all the ways they serve. 
And if you're looking for a study Bible, this is a, this is a great one to have. So maybe consider taking a look at that. And I'll leave, like I said, all these on the front row. Have a leaf through. Um, and if you must steal them, then at least ask for forgiveness later. Um, we'll go from there. But um, Rick, would you come and maybe begin us in prayer, and, uh, and we, will, we will go from there. Thank you so much for okay. serving us in the way that you have. Thank Appreciate you, sir. It. Much obliged. Well, uh, welcome. Well, it's amazing to see you all here. I'm quite stunned, but let's pray, shall we? So. Father, we do thank you for your great love for us and your mercies that truly are new every morning. We thank you for this extraordinary creation that, even though it's broken, still blesses us with your bounty. We thank you, too, that you came to us in Jesus, that we've been able to see what you were truly like to see and touch and to handle, to know you and to be known by you. We thank you for your great grace and love. Thank you for your redemption of us, the forgiveness of our sins in which we gain our freedom. And we thank you, too, for the Holy Spirit, your presence among us as we wait for that sure and certain day of the life of the world to come. We give you great thanks and praise in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Okay, uh, well, it's great to be here. Now, I do apologise, first of all, for last week. Uh, we're meant to have a break at eight, and I think I got going a bit, and we didn't. So I'm going to try and work on making sure that we do, in fact, have a break at eight o'clock. Uh, but, you know, if you're a gentleman of a certain age like me and you feel you have to have a break before that, then go right ahead and do so. Good. Um, so can we have the first slide as we come to this? Terrific. So we're picking up on God's biographers again. Uh, you might begin to realise the reason uh, we chose this title, actually it was Luke's suggestion, is that these are biographies, but what we realise as you go through that most of us have understood Jesus as the Messiah, heard that language, or even Son of God, and those are good things, but they don't go anywhere near far enough. The huge claim of the New Testament is Jesus is none other than Yahweh among us. Now, if you're a U2 fan, that might mean something. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> um, but of course, Yahweh is that unique name that God reveals to Israel at the Exodus. So I'll often talk about God, but actually, if you're going to be faithful to the scriptures, the most common way for, to refer to Israel's God is as Yahweh, or in your English translations, that will be Lord in small caps. Now, some of us are going through the Exodus uh, in our Bible study, and you're beginning to get, I hope, the resonances of what Yahweh actually involves when it's spoken. But that's what we're claiming. These are not just biographies about a guy called Jesus. He's doing things and saying things that just don't fit being a Messiah or even a son of God, which is actually quite common language in antiquity. David was the son of God. Israel was called son of God. Got nothing to do with them sharing anything with Yahweh. It's just a relationship. But Jesus goes beyond that and does some other things. So God's biography is in the sense that this is who Jesus is. Uh, the other point to be really clear about this is we are not talking about the God of the philosophers. No, no, no. Absolutely not. We're not talking about a God that humans come up through rational explanations starting from first principles. If that's what we were talking about, we'd be doing philosophy tonight. We're not doing philosophy, we're doing history. And the reason these Gospels, I'm going to argue, almost certainly have to describe what actually happened is because no one would imagine any of this stuff about God among us. So that's probably the first lesson we have to learn as Christians that... Um, the world is not rational. It doesn't fit our expectations. 
You don't have to be married too long, if I can say that, before you realise that's the case, even with your spouse, right? And if that's the case with life, what makes us think it's the case with God? So no, we're not doing that, okay? So thanks for coming back. Uh, thanks for staying the distance, which is brilliant. And I keep getting a note saying I can join Living Waters Wi-Fi, but I'm just going to pass off that right now. <laughs> now, we finished last time with some stuff on Jesus' teaching, if you like. And we talked about a number of surprising differences. There won't be a quiz tonight, by the way. I've got to get through some stuff, so I'm just going to barrel on through. We talked about Jesus' attitude to Sabbath. Remember the man with the withered hand? You're not meant to do work on the Sabbath, according to the people who are specialists in Torah. And for them, healing is doing work. And then in the wheat field, when his disciples are snacking, people get upset about that. And the point we were making is, Everyone else in the ancient world is calling Israel back to a much closer observance of Torah. And that's not what Jesus does. Now, that, that in itself is staggering. If the gospel writers are inventing this, why wouldn't they invent someone who looks more like what they're expecting? Who would say things like, oh, it's not enough to fast twice a week, you must fast three times. You don't get that kind of intensification, which is really unusual. That's to say nothing about his statement, right, your sins are forgiven you. Now, you know, it's, <laughs> if you're part of the first century Jewish world, this is just mind-blowing, right? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? No one says that. Now, of course, we've had 2,000 years of Christianity, and we talk about this all the time. But in the first century world, to have this Jewish guy, you know, flesh and blood there among them from Galilee of all places, probably still has some wood chips in his hair, right? uh, to say your sins are forgiven, and then the guy gets up and walks. You, you need to understand no one's going to invent that kind of story. That just is so far outside of what people expect. You go to the temple for your sins to be forgiven. So we don't have time to talk about that, but even Jesus making that statement then and there is the beginning of the undermining of the temple. Because if you can have your sins forgiven in relationship with him, you no longer need a temple. And that, I think, explains some of the hostility because the thoughtful people see where this is going. If you can be healed and be reconciled to God by hanging around Jesus, what do you need a temple for? Okay. Just, you might want to think about that one. And some of us, I know, have hopes of having a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem, but as a Christian, why would you bother? You don't need that. You are the temple. Look around. And we are the temple because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay. But that's talking as Christians. So, and then on top of that, I think we finished with Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? A mountain, someone talking about the law. You've seen that before, haven't you? Who's on the mountain talking about the law? Big Mo, okay? Right. And uh, there's a fence around the bottom, and, you know, if you cross the fence, you die. But when Jesus is there, anyone who wants to go up the mountain can. And then he begins with the wonderful Beatitudes. He starts by saying, is there anyone here who knows they can't do this? Which would be me and probably the rest of us. And he says to them, congratulations, this is for you. Now, no rabbi is going to say that. The rabbi will say, if you can't do this, do more Torah. That's not Jesus' response. If you can't do this thing, this is for you. Right? Congratulations. And uh, then, a little bit later, he starts quoting bits from the Torah and says, well, you know, you've heard it said, da, 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 but I say unto you. Now, could you imagine Moses coming down the mountain? We talk about this, right? Say to Israel, well, you know, I've been chatting to Yahweh and he says this, but actually I say unto you. 
Now I'm going to be cheeky. That might not surprise some of us because we're so used to that happening in Pentecostal preaching, right? <laughs> Where the scripture says one thing and we go say our own thing. Oh, there are a few cheeky grins out there. It's okay. Don't take me too seriously. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for a first century Jew to do that kind of thing, it's eye-watering. <laughs> like, what did you just say? <laughs> but I say unto you, uh, what? You can't do that. Well, we're going to finish off some of that stuff on teaching. That was just to get us back into stride, if you like. And then we're going to spend probably half our time on the biggest historical issue, and that's to do with what you would call Jesus' miracles. And I mean that deliberately because I don't think that's the right word to use. We'll talk about that later on. And then, so we're going to be talking then about his actions, and first of all, those mighty deeds, but then there are some other actions that Jesus does that are just as bizarre and unexpected. And then we're going to conclude with the one incredible action without which we wouldn't even be here tonight, which is the... The resurrection, their accounts of the resurrection, okay? And then we'll just try and sum that all up and say, okay, given what we know about the world we've been discussing, how do we explain these stories emerging? And my argument's going to be, we'll move to this next slide, uh, best explanation is that they happen. So here are the three things we're saying so far. The Gospels are actually Greco-Roman biographies. That's what they look like, and they're in Greek, okay? But they're much longer than usual and they're intensely Jewish. That's unusual. And there are four of them. No one gets four in antiquity. No rabbi gets one. That's unusual. I've also suggested to you the fact that these communities are actually small and tight-knit suggests that the traditional attributions are probably correct. Right? That Mark wrote Mark and that John wrote John, that's a much more inflammatory comment for some people that Luke wrote Luke, that's less problematic, and that Matthew wrote Matthew. Uh, there's kind of a middle debate about that, but I think you can trust those early attributions just because of the nature of owning books and their production in the small community. We talked about that last time. And then the final argument we're building toward, so much of this is unique and without parallel in antiquity and all around the one figure, I just can't explain that in any kind of historically reasonable way without... Jesus actually having done stuff very much like this. It's just too out of left field. Okay, good. Good, that's uh, the summary I should say is from Ricky Stevens. So thank you, Ricky, who's gone home, uh, but he helped us out with that one. So next slide, please, Luke, thank you. I wanna pick up on the Sermon of the Mount and particularly you might wanna write this down. You don't have to look up the passage, but Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Uh, if you've ever worked in this field, you'll realise it's one of the most difficult texts, not only in Matthew, but probably in the New Testament. In fact, it's so complex that some people think it couldn't have come from Jesus because he's just a peasant carpenter. <laughs> really? Have you been reading the Gospels? He is a peasant carpenter, but just a peasant carpenter? I don't think so. What carpenter does the kinds of things that Jesus does? So it's always a little interesting when people say, oh, he couldn't have said that, he's just a peasant. I'm thinking, well, hang on. <laughs> These Gospels aren't claiming he's just a peasant. He's something much more than that. Oh, and by the way, how do you actually know he couldn't have said this apart from prejudice? Where's your evidence that he couldn't have said these kinds of things? Well, notice how he begins, okay? Um, begins by saying in, in verse 17, do not think I've come to destroy the law. Now, just stop and think about that for a moment. Uh, forgive me, but you know, suppose Dave gets up next Sunday and says, um, look, I'm going to say some things, but, but don't think I've come to undermine your trust in Jesus. 
<laughs> it, it would never occur to any of us, let alone Dave, to begin like that. Just No one's going to say that in the first century. No Jewish teacher is going to begin by saying, don't think I've come to undermine Torah. Like, can you see how bizarre that is? Why would you start there? Nobody's doing that. Everyone's doing things that actually point to Torah. That's their big issue. That's what the people in Qumran are doing. That's what the Pharisees are doing. They know not all of Israel is going to make it. They know that. They know that not all Israel will be saved. And in order to make it in, you do it by keeping Torah. Then the big debate is, what does it mean to keep Torah? Can you eat an egg laid on the Sabbath or not? Which we might think is a bit trivial, but they take work so seriously. Well, if the chicken works, can you actually participate in the fruit of that work? So they're deeply committed to this kind of thing. And then Jesus stands up and says... Um, well, you know, don't think I've come to destroy the law. Why would he say that unless that's exactly what it was going to look like? And we saw hints of that last time. Then immediately after that, he talks about the abiding validity of the Torah. Not one jot or tittle will pass away. Well, hang on. How do you put that together? And there's a bit more there that we won't go into because you're probably reeling enough at this stage. How does that actually work? How can you put all of that together? It doesn't make sense, which is why people like me have so much trouble with those verses often. And then all that we've just talked about. You've heard it said in the Torah, but I say unto you. <laughs> what do you mean, not one jot or tittle, right? What is he doing there? How do you make sense of that? Now, I'm just saying this, this is in terms of the gospel's narrative, right? Just remember, that's what we're talking about, the gospel story. We're not saying Jesus actually did this. That's not the point yet. Our question is, and why we're not doing this, we can't actually point to Jesus, but we can point to these Gospels. They're there. These are the documents. What are these documents saying and how did they get that idea? That's what we're talking about right now. Okay? So, immediately after that, I've already mentioned, but I say unto you. Well, the way that most folks try to resolve this is by starting with Torah. Well, Yep, Jesus is a Jew, and you read Israel's scriptures or the Old Testament, and it's all about Torah. The first five books are all about Yahweh coming and Torah. Genesis is simply a prologue to the Exodus. That's what's really going on. A little word there, don't try to read Genesis as a world history. It's not trying to do that. There's far too much left out. It's just taking a few chapters to get you to the patriarchs. The patriarchs get you to you know, Abraham and then to Egypt, where you meet Yahweh and the Torah. That's what it's doing. That's the primary focus, okay? So Torah is a really big deal, and you can understand why folks are going to say, well, all Jesus is really doing is, is clarifying and expanding the Torah. And the assumption there is that Jesus himself is Torah obedient and is somehow subject to Torah. Right? Now, you might want to think about that for a bit. Do you really believe that as a Christian, that Jesus is subject to Torah? I'm going to think about that one for a bit. And why? Well, we'll see in just a moment. I think we've given some hints. Now, this is a view that quite a few scholars take and perhaps uh, most Messianic Jews, I think. But to be honest, it takes some pretty slick, nifty manoeuvres with some very quick hands to make it work. There's a moment you start pressing behind this, you're going, hang on a minute, and we've already alluded to some. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. How is that not somehow undermining Torah? Now, I'm going to take a different approach because I think Matthew's doing something different. It is not atypical of Jesus to put together two apparently contradictory things right there alongside each other. 
You must love your parents unless you hate your parents. What? Come across those? What are you doing with all of that? Well, it's not that tricky if you start in the right place. What's the correct answer to every Sunday school question that you can remember? Right. Why don't we start with him instead of Torah? After all, that's what the Gospels are proclaiming, aren't they? Jesus, not proclaiming Torah. So what's he saying? You do have to love your parents because God requires it. But you have to realise that I take complete priority over loving them. Mm. So what if what Matthew has Jesus saying is more like, it might look like I'm destroying the law, but I'm the one telling you that no matter how it looks, I'm actually fulfilling it. What he's doing is undermining their expectations. They think they know what it's going to look like when God fulfills the law. And Jesus says, actually, I'm telling you what it looks like. Even if it looks like I'm undermining it. And what's going on there? Well, he's saying God's fulfilling his promises is no longer about Torah. It's about me. That's why we worship him. Well, I've used this word before, but that truly is a bit eye-watering. If you think in the first century Jewish setting, really? Now, there are two examples of this, I think. There's quite a polemical account where some Jewish authorities, the Pharisees and their legal experts, they're upset because Jesus' disciples are not washing their hands before eating. And then if you look carefully at Jesus' response, you you see two things going on. First of all, he holds them accountable to Torah. Oh, you're worried about Torah? You don't keep it. You add to it and you subtract from it. He says, the only reason you do that is because your hearts are far from God. Okay, here's the zinger. If you know people who add to scripture or take away from it, the only reason they do that is because their hearts are far from God. No one whose heart is close to God would ever dream of fiddling with scripture. No one. It just goes right for them. Bang, right? Now, that's why I happen to be a Protestant and not very keen on people elevating church tradition to the same level as Scripture. Jesus warned us about doing that. And Paul himself will say in 1 Corinthians, don't go beyond what's written. Because we love to do that as humans, don't we? Jesus says some things, now we had a whole lot of extra rules, right? You can have an earring as long as it's only this big and one stud, but not two. You can have hair down to here, but not down to there, right? And if you're going to have flares, remember those guys? Right? They can be this, but not that, right? We just love to add all this stuff. And Jesus says, don't. And we do it as though we're being spiritual. And in fact, from Jesus' point of view, it's exactly the opposite. Truly godly people would never dream of doing that. That's a bit of a zinger, isn't it? Because I grew up for a while where people, that was the mark of being spiritual, adding all these extra rules. Oh, right? Then if you look carefully, you notice a lot of the people who added the extra rules weren't that great on love or compassion, were they? So maybe something else is going on. So that's the first thing he does. He holds them accountable, demonstrates their hearts are far from God. It's absolutely searing, this material in Mark. If you truly honour God, he said, you take his word very seriously, you'd neither add nor subtract, if you truly love God. And then what does he do? The very next thing he does is exactly what he told them not to do because he takes the Torah and says, this bit no longer applies to you. You notice that? Calls the crowd and says, listen, it's not what goes into you that defiles, but what comes out. Well, hang on a minute. That exactly contradicts the law. 
In the law, God said, these things shall be unclean for you. God said that. God said it. Israel has to do it. Right. So hang on. How can you hold them accountable to Torah and not be accountable yourself? Well, Jewish people know there's one person to whom the law does not apply in that sense. And that's the one who gave it. I think Paul gets this in Galatians. Whereas the Jews thought the Torah was eternal, Paul finally understands, no, 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 it couldn't be because he could never bring the things it pointed to. Torah could never bring spirit or resurrection. That only comes through Jesus. And that's why he says in Galatians, even the law itself tells you that the law could never make alive. It'll help you live a pretty good life, generally speaking. That's Proverbs and that kind of stuff. But Proverbs won't get you resurrected and it won't fill you with the spirit. Torah won't do that. And Paul recognises, oh, Jesus could. Hmm. I think what's going on here, and of course it's debated by scholars, is Jesus is doing exactly what we've seen you do at the sermon. It's about me, it's not about Torah. So I don't mean to shock you folks, but Christians, it's okay to talk about the Ten Commandments, but they're not us. We're Jesus. That's what we do. He's our focus. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. And all that flows out of that. Wow. So it's as though Jesus is saying to them, yep, whatever the Aramaic is for that. All that Torah stuff was great up until now, but guess who's here? And now that I'm here, we're done with that. <laughs> kind of getting that? Okay, this might, I'm trying to help you realise how serious this is. Um, I have uh, some friends back in Australia where there's a really big deal about tithing. And every church service, there are two sermons. There's one on scripture and there's one on tithing. Comes up over and over again, right? But all those tithing texts come from where? From the Torah, right? And you want to say to these guys, do you really want to be doing that? Because Paul says in Galatians, if you insist on keeping part of the law, you're up for all of it, right? And then you can't ask Jesus to be your redeemer when you stand before God. Right? Now, you know, I chose that not to pick a fight over, you know, Christians should be generous, absolutely. But I'm trying to pick a topic to kind of get your attention a bit so you realise, wow, he really is messing with stuff. That's what I want you to get, okay? That all right? Just kind of picking up one to, it's late and maybe that's a coffee moment. I don't know, I need to keep moving. Well, you see a similar thing in Luke. We're looking at Luke, right? It's a chap who wants to follow Jesus amongst a bunch of others, right? And uh, this guy says, look, I want to come and follow you, but uh, let me first bury my parents. Now, I don't know what you think about that. For the Jewish people, honouring your parents is a really serious thing. It's the first commandment with promise that you might live long in the land. Don't honour your parents. You're asking for death from a Jewish point of view. And there is just massive amounts of Jewish tradition on what it means to love your parents. You have to honour them like you honour God. Why? Because like God, they created you. Other sayings like, no man, of course you're dealing with men, so it's their first century world. No man could dishonour his parents without first dishonouring God in his heart. 
That'd be their reading. If you're not honoring your parents, you've already dishonored God. They can tell that, right? Oof. And it just goes on. Reams, reams, reams. Now, proper burial was one of the most important acts of honoring your parents. And all kinds of people cared about proper burial. It wasn't just the Jews, the ancient world as well. It was so important, it took priority over saying the Shema. You know the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, unique. Right? That defines them. Burying your parents took priority even over that. Whoa. And then what does Jesus say? Yeah, right. Let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. <laughs> what? <laughs> Can you go like, seriously? Can you hear that? If you're not being rocked off your seat and almost laying on your back at this point, you aren't hearing this. This is like <laughs> your eyebrow should be pinned to the back wall by now, or something similar. Okay, remember the BASF tapes from years ago with the guys with the speaker and his hair's being blown off his head. That's what should be happening right now. Right? Now we said this last time. You've got to see this is a huge problem for any faithful rabbi. Good teachers point to Torah. And you're pointing to yourself. Ooh. He doesn't say, follow Torah better. He says, follow me. No rabbi, as far as we know, ever called students to follow him. That would be simply too presumptuous, an appalling thought. But that's what Jesus does. Well, you know, just, you're going to have to take some time to really sit down, take an hour of quiet time, and just work this through in your head to really get the implications of what's going on. You can see why there's no mucking about with Jesus. If you're not in for the full meal deal, sorry, go home. You either go big or you go home. That's what it means to follow Jesus. None of this mucking around at the edges. And he's really clear on that. You're going to see that in Luke in just a little while. If you don't gather with me, you scatter. If you're not for me, you're against me. And now you see why. Wow, feeling a bit weak in the knees. Wow, who have we come to here? So what we're really asking is, who does this kind of thing? Seriously, what kind of sense of identity do they have? And we do this all the time, folks. And someone does something, what are we constantly doing? We're thinking through their motivation. Right? We're trying to work out why they did what they did and whether we liked them or not. Right? Unless we're sleepwalking through life, we try to work out, oh, why did they say that? Are they after me? Yeah. What do you mean? That kind of thing. Have you ever heard yourself say that? Of course you do. Okay. Well, think about this. That's exactly what's going on here. Think about what Jesus is doing. What sense of identity must he have to say this kind of thing? Who does he think he is? And this is still an issue, I think, that, you know, kind of bubbling to the surface in my field. Everyone, you know, we're kind of happy to have Jesus think he was the Messiah, something he was deluded. And maybe even son of God, because that's another word for being a really righteous person. But did Jesus actually think he was God among us? Well, what kind of person is going to stand up in the boat just having been woken for a sleep and not say coffee, right, and instead say shut up and it listens to him? And it is kind of that blunt, actually. Think about that. The guy's just woken up. No time to kind of get his face in gear and put on the presentation. He just wakes up and bang, out it comes. What kind of person does that? 
what human beings, Moses is not going to do that. Who does this guy think he is? Okay. Oof. Well, hmm. What kind of first century Jewish person is going to say and act as though he matters more than Torah? Oh, and by the way, I'm changing it. <laughs> well, who does this guy think he is? That's a really good question. And the disciples ask it very early on. Who is this? It's a great question. If you haven't answered, asked that yet, you want to. The answer is important. Well, you understand that if uh, it's possible that if the Gospels Jesus was wandering around Galilee making statements like this, he would probably get seen as a nutter, be seen as a nutter, like the guy's completely lost his marbles, which, by the way, is how Mary and his brothers see him. So let's not romanticise Mary out of all reality, right? Yep, she says, you know, may it be according to your servant, according to your will, but later on she wants to take Jesus away because she thinks he's lost it, right? which is a polite way of saying we think he has a demon but she won't be that direct. Why does she say that? Because of these kinds of things. He's lost his mind. But you see, that's not an option. And why not? This brings us to the next major bit. Okay, thank you. Um, it's Jesus' mighty deeds. Ignoring him was never an option, simply because of his astonishing personal authority evident in his mighty deeds, not least in casting out demons or unclean spirits, which themselves are the antithesis of being righteous. So that creates part of the tension. This guy looks like he's breaking Torah. Where does he get his authority to tell demons what to do? If you're breaking Torah, you're on the side of who? Satan. Okay? So you can see you can't deny the mighty deeds, but how can he break Torah? He must get his power from where? You've just thought through where the Pharisees are coming from. Why do they get there? Because they're starting with Torah. Now it's all coming back to Jesus again, isn't it? Who's most important? So we're going to have to spend a bit of time here. Uh, we just have to do that. It's one of the, the biggest topics, I think, in terms of the most common objection, at least, to the historical reliability of the Gospels. And the Enlightenment, in some ways, was the big one in our Western history. But it was there before that, 2nd and 3rd century AD. It's been around. Some of you might have heard of David Hume, right, about miracles. It's a completely philosophical answer and pays no attention to Jesus' cultural background. But that's what you expect of the Enlightenment. They don't do history to find truth that way. They're mostly thinking rationally and philosophically. Okay? Uh, that's not what we're doing here. Well, I have to say, by the way, that things have changed, in my field at least, in the last 20 or 30 years. It's been amazing to be a part of this. Uh, a lot of the scepticism about Jesus' mighty deeds, and can I say, please don't use miracles. It, it's not biblical. and has all kinds of implications that aren't helpful. We'll stick with mighty deeds. I'll unpack some of those implications in just a moment. But... As people who've worked in this field and have actually looked at the Gospels as some kind of historical account, it's become increasingly evident that it's impossible to talk about Jesus without admitting that he had an astonishing reputation for healing all kinds of people. That's simply unavoidable. You simply can't get away from it. You can't be a good historian without accepting that whatever else, Jesus certainly had this kind of reputation. It's there in every level, just all over the place about him. And there's no one else like him in antiquity. 
So I think in my field, it's, it's accurate to say that uh, folks are willing to talk about Jesus healing the blind, the deaf, the lame, casting out unclean spirits. The ones they have problems with are the so-called nature miracles, the sea and multiplying bread in the desert. But there's been a big shift, even in my own you know, 30 years of studying, seeing that. And I think, you know, there's, people are now much more aware of odd things going on in the world. There are two books, um, major scholarly works from Oxford and Cambridge, where anthropologists have gone and studied folks in, in different cultures and seen them do really bizarre things that a scientific worldview can't explain. And just said, okay, the world's odder than we thought. Okay. So I think, yeah. Now, next slide. Just to repeat this, uh, I've got a question after miracles. I really think it's unhelpful to use that word. Partly because the Gospels never call them miracles, they call them mighty deeds. Okay. That's what they call them, so I would stick with that. Why does the terminology matter? Well, I think, first of all, miracle for us often implies a breach in the laws of nature. Because right? that's often where the debate goes. But that's not the emphasis of the Gospels. They're not interested in breaches of laws of nature. They don't even know about laws of nature. That's not their world. Let's not impose that upon them. The gospel's point is the remarkable authority of Jesus. That's what they're after. That's why these deeds are mighty. We've never seen anything like this before. This is extraordinary. Nothing is ever implied in the gospels as to whether a law of nature has been broken or not. Now, part of the reason for that is, in one very real sense, laws of nature don't actually exist. You can't get a test tube, fill it with some soil, a bit of a fern, maybe some twigs off the tree outside, put it in a reducing environment, and out the bottom falls E equals MC squared. It's not going to happen. They're not real like that. They're essentially constructs of our consciousness based on what we consistently and regularly experience because we see it all the time, we call them laws, but they don't actually exist as laws. It's what a famous Italian philosopher, Benedetto Croce, one of my heroes, I always mispronounce his name, can never quite get it right, as my Italian friends gleefully point out. Um, he called scientific laws pseudo-concepts, not because they're not true, but because they're not real like the sun, moon, stars, and you and I. You can't see and touch and handle these things. Now, they're certain as far as we know, but they're always open to modification on the basis of new discoveries, of new things that we see here, etc. right? So we don't actually know if Jesus is in fact breaking any such laws. Now, true, we've never seen anything like this, but we don't actually know how Jesus' authority works. Just imagine you're back in the first century and you see an Airbus 380 flying at 500 feet over Rome. What will the reaction be? An act of the gods, miracle. Right? Pythagoras has upgraded his golden thigh and golden arrow to something else. Well, you know, um, but it's not for us, even though we're pretty amazed by what we've been able to do. It's just we know a lot more about how the world works. So we know it's not a miracle. We know why this thing does what it does. What if the same thing's going on here? 
What if there's no breach of any laws at all, just an amazing ability to manipulate and control the creation? Right? Merely by his word. You see that? And that's what they're claiming, by the way, that Jesus is, in fact, the creator among us. That's what Colossians is on about. You see, the underlying assumption, it seems to me, is that if we could just sit on a God lecture, deity level 15,001, so it's pretty high up in the university curriculum, we'd be able to comprehend, right? Oh, so that's how it all works. Well, really? Where we get the idea that the world was rational like that, we got them from our old friends, the Hellenes. They assumed the universe was rational. It could be understood using only the resources of the human mind. Now, that works for a lot of stuff like math and the way inanimate things tend to interact. That's a lot of stuff, but lot is not the same as everything. Okay? They're two different things. We have no idea even what everything might entail. Can you see that? It works in some small areas, but does that mean everything? So the question I want to ask the Greeks is, oh, how do you actually know that your mind can do all of this? The moment you ask that question, you realise it's just an assumption. And an arrogant one at that, right? <laughs> that my mind can understand everything. I don't know if you know, but initially Harvard's um, Shield, it had three books and the third book was turned on its uh, over so you couldn't read the pages. So there are two books that are open, one that was closed, and that was because they believed not everything was open to human rationality. And now the third book is turned face up so you can actually read the pages. Hmm. What if the analogy is not a classroom where God teaches sheep to become uber shepherds? <laughs> I work in a field where there are lots and lots of young people coming in as sheep, but they're going to learn to become, getting their master's degree, they'll graduate to uber shepherd. Like, really? Whoever told you we're going to be anything but sheep? <laughs> Just, you kind of have this assumption. <laughs> really? <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, now they're all sheep in graduate shepherding school or something. <laughs> what if that's not the truth? What if the truth is we're all like permanent three-year-olds trying to understand Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, if you know what that is? No amount of education will help. Why? Because the problem is not the education, it's our brains. We're simply not up to it and nor ever will be if we remain three-year-old brains, right? You just we haven't developed enough. My point is, if Jesus is the creator, whatever makes me think that my educated mind is still going to be at the level that can actually discourse with him on these matters. Okay. And that's where I think the idolatry lies. And for me, that's one of the huge problems of the Greek world, this idolatry of human reason. And oh boy, does it creep into the church, especially in academic settings. Right? But somehow human reason's got this all sorted. But not just them. Watch what happens when we suffer. How many Christians come up with a good rational reason why you're suffering? <sighs> Be careful. Okay. Well, now I'm not trying to defend whether the things that the Gospels describe can actually happen or not and what's actually going on. I'm just raising some questions about some assumptions we might have. All I'm saying is, whatever else you do, if you want to talk about Jesus, you can't talk about him without taking seriously his widespread and universal reputation among friends and foes and the non-committed that he performed extraordinary deeds. And of such power that even his most implacable enemies 
had to explain that somehow and hence to get back to where we were either from God or from Satan but no space in between. And that makes perfect sense in the first century world against which the Gospels are written. Now, I'm not saying you have to believe that Jesus performed mighty deeds. That's not the question. Hasn't been the question for these last two evenings and this one. The historical question is, how did the Gospels come up with this kind of material? That's the question, given the kind of background that we have. Now, we're going to have to say a few things about the culture of the ancient world. So that's what I'm going to launch into right now. I'm going to go through this a little quickly. And I've been speaking quickly already, but we just um, had to get through some of this stuff, I'm afraid. There's always the recording, so you can go back and, if you want to. And they're only $10,000 each. It's a small price to pay, but it will fund my retirement. No. <laughs> That's all right. um, you often hear people say, well, you know, there were all kinds of wonder workers back then. The Gospels, Jesus is just one more in a long line. Okay. Um, Sounds impressive, but there are questions. You know, first, that kind of general hand-waving. Oh, just one more. Watch those kind of explanations, folks. They usually tend to avoid thinking about it carefully. Oh, you know. Oh, you know. <laughs> you have to get the right accent. Oh, flip all the flip all You get that from studying in England. They're really good at doing that. <laughs> all right, sorry. Well, not really. Um, <laughs> But that doesn't explain why these particular stories are attributed to Jesus, of all people. That doesn't explain that. There are all kinds of wonder workers. And so, how does that explain why Jesus is so described this way? You haven't actually explained it. You tried to explain it away, but you haven't actually explained it. And by the way, there's a big difference between explaining and explaining away. And you just want to you know, keep sharp on that one when you can. These stories weren't attributed to a vast number of others. Why pick Jesus? Why him of all people, if you like? Well, more importantly, is that hand-waving claim actually true? Was Jesus just one more in the long line of such wonder workers? I'm not sure that it is, along with some other scholars. In the Greco-Roman world, and remember, these Gospels are written in what language? Greek, right? In their world, things seem rather different. The majority of our Greco-Roman wonder worker stories come from the period between the 7th and 5th centuries BC. That's about 600 years before Jesus. And it's a real dog's breakfast, to use the technical term. Some folks work wonders by their music. They can cause plagues. You know, I've heard some people practicing violins that could do that. Uh, <laughs> or charming rock to form walls around a city. Euphemus, son of Zeus. Zeus has a son, Zeus, well, mm, okay, could run on the sea so fast he kept his feet dry. Ever tried that? Mm. <laughs> Pythagoras, now I know you've heard of him, was reputed even by one as great as Aristotle. Aristotle bought into this, right? but you never learnt that one in school. To have had a golden thigh which he displayed at the Olympics. We should, maybe that should be a new event, the next Winter Olympics, right? Displays of golden thighs. <laughs> Oh dear. And a thigh went up from the crowd. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> he also had a golden arrow by which he flew great distances. He could end pestilences and discoursed with animals. Who's that doctor? Dr. Doodle, is it? So there you go. Uh, there are other more ancient philosophers who have their own stories, though nowhere near as glorious and extensive as the ones we've mentioned. 
There is the healing god Asclepius, the mythical son of Apollo. And if you go to a place called Epidavros in Greece, you'll actually see one of his great shrines. And there are some 70 inscriptions that date from about 400 years before Jesus, where he heals the blind, the lame, and, some of you will be pleased to hear, the bald. He restores fish destroyed by lightning. And women, you'll be delighted with this one. Uh, he healed five and seven year pregnancies and restored, uh, help people find lost treasure. All right, so there's a real grab bag of um, you know, wonderful things that you can do. Now, interestingly, stories like this began to tail off around the same time that philosophy began to emerge. And they be almost none by the time you get to 150 years before Jesus, or 200, right? So all this stuff, I'm trying to think, okay, over here, yep. So 7 to 5 BC, then it begins to tail off 400, and then that tailing off starts around 400 with philosophy, I should say, and then by 200, it's almost nothing. So I want to suggest that this is partly due to the influence of Hellenistic philosophies, rationalism, where it's all about the mind. Okay? Now, that general trend under the influence of philosophy is in exactly the opposite direction to what you find happening in the Gospels. In the Greco-Roman world, they're trying to get away from that stuff, especially with people who are teachers. And what is Jesus? He's nothing if not a teacher. So the idea that somehow you've got Greco-Roman Christians who add all of these mighty deeds to Jesus to make him look better, you've got a massive problem because no one else is doing that in antiquity. They're going the other way. They're, trying to, they're doing their level best to Photoshop that stuff out, which is why you've never heard most... Who's heard of Pythagoras and geometry? Who heard about his golden thigh? No? You want to talk about Photoshopping? Hmm, exactly. Right? Now, there is an exception. There are two stories from Egypt associated with Emperor Vespasian, who's neither a philosopher nor a teacher. And he supposedly had been involved accidentally, as it were, in two healings. And it's all a bit embarrassing. You kind of read it and the Roman guy who's recounting it just, well, you know. Um, but of course, it's Egypt and Egypt's into that kind of really weird stuff. So it looks like it's a bit of propaganda. So the Egyptians will actually recognize that the emperor is somehow a god among them. And then there's Simon Magus. Uh, you might have heard of him from Acts. He's a very different kettle of fish from Jesus. So he's not really in the running in terms of comparison here. Lastly, probably the most famous is a guy called Apollonius of Tyana, and that's not a special Italian sausage. Okay? <laughs> Apollonius of Tyana. Of all the figures we have, his healings are the most like Jesus, but there's a problem. His biography, even though he comes from the first century, his biography in which all these things appears wasn't written until the early third century, a long time after the Gospels when Jesus was becoming increasingly popular. In fact, his name can be found on all kinds of magical amulets by people who don't even worship him because they know his name has this amazing reputation for power. Right. So I think rather than Apollonius influencing Jesus, it's entirely in the other direction. It's the Gospels from a century and a half earlier that have shaped the account of Apollonius so he can actually be shown to compete with someone like Jesus. So I think, ironically, the Apollonius account from the third century points to, again, this reputation Jesus has for doing amazing things.
So we look at the Greco-Roman world and you know, just all the stuff that's on the table, how many golden thighs does Jesus have? How often does he jump upon his golden arrow and suddenly, you know, time to go to Damascus, disciples, jump on the back, off we go, right? A Harry Potter Jesus or something? No, I don't. I'm not trying to be irreverent, but no, 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 no. Just, Jesus doesn't do this kind of stuff. He doesn't do magic tricks. Not at all. And on top of that, um, the Gospels are, as we saw, fundamentally Jewish. So let's talk about the Jewish world. Well, here's the thing. Mighty deeds are relatively rare, even in Israel's scriptures. Right? Largely confined to Moses, Elijah and Elisha. Isaiah does none. Jeremiah neither. Most prophets do not perform mighty deeds. Limited to just a few and for particular reasons. Hmm. They're rare too in the rabbis. There are two somewhat marginal fingers, uh, fingers, figures, sorry. Uh, and you'll remember these names, I'm sure, forever. Honi, the circle drawer, and Kanita Bendosa. Well, there you go. Honi um, was walking home one day and it wasn't raining properly. He was known as a very holy man, so he drew a circle in the ground and said, you know, Lord of the universe, I'm not moving out of this circle unless you send rain upon your people. Whereupon this massive downpour ensued and he then said, Master of the universe, I ask for gentle rain. So then it eased off and then he walked out of his circle. Okay, that's Honi. And then Kanina, uh, what kind of things does he do? Well, he's, he survives being bitten by a snake. He prays at a distance for a boy with a fever who's healed. He lengthens building joists. So very good to have on your building team if you're into construction. And if you're a baker, he could cause bread to appear in his wife's oven. Now, I'm just pointing out, that's what's out there. Does Jesus actually look like any of that? Doesn't really look like the Greco-Roman world. Doesn't really look like what's going on in the Jewish world. Josephus, heard of him, first century Jewish historian. Okay, He speaks of these false prophets who promise but don't perform wonders in the desert. Why would a false prophet who's announcing Israel's deliverance promise wonders in the desert? Where do you think he got that idea from? E-word anybody? Exodus, yep, okay. And they're also promising to stop the Jordan. Right, yeah, got it. And they're going to cause the walls of Jerusalem to fall. What does that all sound like? The Exodus and the Conquest. Well, of course. That's what it looks like to first century people when you're talking about bringing in God's kingdom. He's going to do the stuff he did before. But how many frogs did Jesus call to fall upon, cause to fall upon Nazareth? doesn't do anything like that. You ever notice that? Well, you're like, well, what about the Messiah? Surely the Messiah is going to do stuff. No, none, none at all. He's the son of David. How many mighty deeds does David perform? Zip. The Messiah doesn't do mighty deeds. The Messiah is a military leader, political figure, who's going to be part of God's deliverance of Israel, and that's it. And that's why if you read the Gospels when Jesus does this, you don't find people saying, oh, he's the Messiah, and Mary six out and says, no, he's not, he's not a little boy. You haven't seen that movie either. Okay, you guys do need to get out of it, okay? we just got to get you out of the world a little. <laughs> Not too much, but a little. Um, you do reckon that's from the life of Brian, right? That's probably why you haven't seen it. Okay, all right. Well, it's a... You do understand that movie was not about mocking Jesus. It was about the British delight in taking on Christians who are a bit kind of dillish and not very thoughtful. 
Is that all right? It's not an attack on Jesus. It's actually, you know, <laughs> which might be why we reacted. Who knows? Well, no, they never say that, right? What they do go for is profit because that's the best category they have. Certainly not all the prophets, but there are a couple who fit like Moses. It's their best option. Now, just with all of that in mind, declining interest in antiquity, some really bizarre stuff, and then the kind of marginal odd things with Honi and Canina, and then the conquest-type things from these prophets that never actually did anything, according to Josephus. Compare all of that. What do you have in the Gospels? Some 37 individual accounts, unique accounts in their own right, 37 of them. That is remarkable. If you're an historian, that's mind-boggling. Where does suddenly this explosion of this stuff occur? Only around Jesus. Where does that come from? Because it just goes in the opposite direction to so much of what we're looking at. And I see the time. Give me five more minutes and we'll take a break. What about Isaiah 29 and 35? You know the text, don't you? Then the eyes of the blind will be Opened. Remember that one, the lame will leap. Isaiah 35, yes, yes, maybe, okay, not so much. Isaiah 29, no, okay, all right. Uh, well, surely they're talking about healings in the future. Wow, that's a great question. But look at how Jewish tradition understands them. It's an Aramaic paraphrase of the Hebrew Bible. And when it comes to this passage, it treats them as metaphors. It says they're blind with regard to reading Torah and deaf when it comes to hearing the prophets. And they're not mucking about with it because the first blindness and deafness language comes from Isaiah chapter 6, and there it's metaphorical. They're being consistent with the metaphorical idea running all the way through. No one's expecting Isaiah 35 to be fulfilled with physical healings. Qumran likewise. They have a text where it's also read metaphorically, and not only that, they say the blind and the deaf will be excluded from the messianic feast. Far from being healed, you're kicked out. So when Jesus says to John's disciples, go tell John what you see, that really is going to blow John's mind because no one is expecting that to happen physically, as far as we can tell. Hmm. What about commanding the sea to come to that tricky one? There's no such thing like that in Israel's future hope let alone walking on the water. Ooh. Casting out of demons? Well, okay, yep, people did that in Jesus' day. I've got three more minutes before we take our break. He himself refers to the sons of the Pharisees who are doing something like that. But the difference is this. Where they cast this stuff out, Jesus says his casting out of unclean spirits is actually the sign of the kingdom coming. And he uses the language from the Exodus, the finger of God is among you. And those of you who know a bit about the Exodus will pick that up because the finger language is what the pagan magicians use to say to Pharaoh, hang on, the finger of God's at work here. It's interesting that Jesus uses that language when speaking to the Pharisees. Kind of tells you what he thinks of their relationship with God. Now, perhaps even more interesting is that even though Jesus is regularly said to heal all or many who came to him, and if you read Matthew, that's what gets people's interest. He's known as the healer. That's why they flock to him. Right? His teaching has authority, but what really gets people's attention is the fact that he heals people. He's not just doing party tricks. He's the healer. Matthew makes a big point of that. That might say something about 
us as Christians. Our job is to heal right now. We're not going to do the Jesus thing. That's a whole other debate, but at least in terms of our relationships. Okay. So enough of the factions. Right? Enough of having arguments about trivial things. Let that stuff go. We're meant to be people who bring healing to relationships. Okay? That's the mark of who we are. And you, that's the hallmark of Jesus, I think. So even though he does all of this, if you look at the, the actual stories the Gospels have, it's a very odd selection. What are the vast majority? Eyes, ears, mouths and limbs. And unclean spirits. Now, no one does that. Where does that come from? Where does it come from? It seems unique to the Gospels account of what Jesus does. They seem to be suggesting that Jesus himself focused on these kinds of things. Then casting out of unclean spirits, calming the sea, feeding people in the desert. This is a really strange grouping of stuff. It's not just that he does these things. Why the focus on this particular grouping? Well, you don't have to read the Gospels for long to realise that Scripture really matters for Jesus. Mm -hmm. I hope it matters for us. There's my alarm telling me. Great. Two minutes. One minute. Well, as far as I can see, language of eyes, ears, limbs and mouths all goes back to the image of God. Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He can do whatever he pleases. The gods of the nations have eyes but cannot see ears but cannot hear, mouths that cannot speak, etc., etc., and so are all those who worship them. Psalm 135. And what about casting out unclean spirits? Well, if humans are made in God's image, what does that mean? We're designed to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now you get some of Luke's emphases in the Gospel. Now we talked about that the Lord's Prayer, asking, seeking, knocking. What does it focus on? The Holy Spirit. That's the climax. Not your new BMW, but the Holy Spirit. That's the thing you're after because that's what enables us to become truly made in God's image. Okay. And in order for that to happen, out go the unclean spirits first. Had that happen in a regent lecture once. That was quite unexpected, I have to say. Right. So he's going to drive those out. Then he promises to fill them with his Holy Spirit. Whoa. Now, according to the Gospels, this combination reflects Jesus' own intentional emphasis, a new creational, new exodus, restoration of humanity in God's image. Oh, that's the summary. Now, if that's what's going on, that's completely without parallel. And as far as we can tell, completely unexpected. And not only that, only Yahweh does this kind of thing. No mere prophet, okay, nor Messiah. Only Yahweh does this, and staggeringly, that seems to fit hand in glove with exactly Jesus' attitude to Torah. Right? This consistent picture runs all the way through. The only one who could possibly talk about Torah in the way that Jesus does and do the kinds of things that Jesus does is Yahweh himself. Now, where in the world could that come from? Let's take a short break. Take a 10-minute break, we'll come back and I'll finish off and then we'll have some questions. So I'm sorry about that. We've got maybe 10 more minutes to go. Oh, now I can catch a breath as well. You, kind of... <laughs> you understand where you can spend your life studying the Gospels, right? <laughs> it's great stuff. <laughs> See you in 10.
Okay, folks, we're going to invite you to come on in and have a seat again. We're going to get started. So if you can hear my voice and you're in the lobby, please come in and uh, have a seat. And we'll continue with the rest of our talk. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. Thank you, everybody. All feeling relieved, are we? Good. Uh, look, I, I realize there's a lot of stuff here. Um, get what you can. There's cookies on every shelf. But what I'm really trying to build is the kind of case that I would present in an academic setting to say there are good reasons to trust this stuff. And this can be taught in any setting. You don't have to teach it to Christians. This can be taught anywhere to people who actually care about historical evidence like these Gospels and who know about that culture and want to think about it. Anyone can do that, all right? So um, at the end of all of this section, I think we have to face it as historians how could these accounts in these books possibly have come about? How could a first century Jewish writer with the kind of background we spoke of, you know, some prophets do some mighty deeds, right? Honi, Kanina, yeah, they're not really sure if that happened or not. The guys who are the prophets doing the conquest thing. How could they ever come up with these accounts that you have in the Gospels, 37 of them? Where does that come from? Hmm. How can they even conceive of this? And it's not just those mighty deeds, it's all the stuff that Jesus has said. Right? It's all part and parcel of this one package. Don't break them up into little bits, it's all there together. Okay. Well, given in their world that there's such a foundational distinction between Yahweh and his creation, now we're not used to thinking this, but it's really important you get this right. When you're starting thinking as a Christian, you don't start with spiritual and unspiritual. Don't start there. Don't start with good and evil. Don't start there. Don't start with heavenly and earthly. Don't start there. Where does scripture start? Yahweh and his creation. That's where you start as a believer. Always there, right? And the rest flows out of it. Start in any of those other places and you'll end up doing some serious damage to the gospel. Okay? So I just got to get that into your heads, right? Well, given that foundational distinction between the creator and everything else, what do you do when Jesus starts doing what only the creator can do? So when Jesus stands up in the boat and says, you know, shut up, and it does, they're more afraid of him than they were of the storm. And now you know why. No prophet does that. They thought they're in the boat with some teacher. What do you do if you're actually in the boat with Yahweh? Who has wood chips in his beard. <laughs> right? Not to trivialise it. What do you do with that? Right? We, do, you just, do you understand how stunning this is? Who is going to invent a story like that? It's inconceivable even to think that way, it seems to me. And then don't even bother to think about the idea of Jesus somehow himself acting as though he's Yahweh among us. This is so utterly mind-blowing. Now, these accounts, what, they're all happening within 30 to 60 years of Jesus' life and largely within living memory. Whoa. All right, coming to our last section now, just picking up on some of Jesus' other actions. And, yep, our next slide. Thank you so very much. So, just thank you, Luke. Very quickly then, if I can. Remember Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God? What does he do? He opens to the wrong kind of people. Zacchaeus, the tax collectors, prostitutes, even Roman centurions. 
That Roman centurion, which Jesus says, I've not seen such great faith, no, not even in Israel. Many will come from north, south, east and west, which is typical Jewish language of return from exile. But then he says the children of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. He sees the Gentiles actually being part of this great hope new exodus, hope for new exodus, and most of Israel missing out. What rabbi is going to think that? Mm. And you see, we're so used to this. And because we just read this out of the text without the background and without the historical setting, we just kind of read this and go home and watch the hockey. Right? I'm not against hockey, though I wish it was cricket. Um, <laughs> no, it's not that, but just, I hope you're realising just how staggering this is. That this is this... Well, <clears throat> and he eats with them which is really what gets people upset because to eat with someone is to enter into a relationship with them. Now you understand that's what's going on in communion, don't you? The moment we share communion, we are swearing an oath that we will never betray the people we eat with. That's what we're swearing. It's not just me and Jesus having a little quiet spiritual time. I'm saying to this body, I will never betray you. That's a slightly bigger deal, isn't it? I think that might get rid of quite a lot of inner church nitpicking, right? Um, Because uh, I think on this reading of Paul, that's what will kill you. Some of you are sick, some of you even died because you're doing that kind of thing. Two words, stop it. He eats with them, and that's why the Pharisees get so upset. He's at the centre, not Torah. And then, of course, what are you doing with these people? And his answer is, well, actually... I'm meeting with the people who, who need me. I haven't come for the whole. That's a bit ironic. I don't think he thinks the Pharisees are whole. I come for those who are ill. And then again, right, he calls 12 disciples. 12. Go figure. What does that sound like? No wonder Mary thinks he's lost it. Where does he do this? On a mountain. Come on, really? Okay. What's the fuss all about? Well, what does that sound like if you're a Jew? Doesn't it sound like Yahweh summoning the 12 tribes to hear from him? Here's Jesus reconstituting Israel around himself. No wonder Mary thinks he needs to be taken in hand. And she's the one who had the prophecies. She's the one who saw the angel. And this is still blowing her world apart. Hmm. Now, speaking of mountains, there's a transfiguration. This story in itself is kind of mind-boggling. So we're on this mountain and there's Moses and Elijah. And... uh, And notice what's happening there. They're talking to Jesus and Jesus is shining like all get out, if I can use that language. And the disciples have no idea what to do with it. Completely discombobulated, if you like that word. It's a good word. Why would someone invent this? And I remember leading a trip to Israel once and um, the Israeli tour guide with me had been in the Six-Day War and they were tank commander and we got on really well and... We're on Mount Tabor and we had to talk about this a little bit. And he was on the side, I didn't really see him, but I was just explaining, you know, in Jewish tradition, uh, there's only three times, so here's Jesus on the mountain, white and shining. There's only three times in Jewish tradition when Yahweh wore white at the creation, when he married Israel at Sinai, and when he brought them out of exile. And notice, you've seen shining in a mountain, haven't you? Moses comes down the mountain, his face is shining, but that happens after the clouds there. Jesus is shining long before the cloud turns up. Now, you know, I'm talking to 
folks were on the tour, but I didn't see later on, the other tour leader said to me, you should have seen Ari's eyes, they're out on stalks. Because he got this, this is his world, he knows what this language means. Who's going to invent a story like that? Well, because Jesus was the Messiah. No, 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 no. The Messiah does not make you Yahweh. The Messiah does not shine for crying out loud, right? This doesn't happen to him. Okay. Well, it's a prophet. Well, Moses maybe, but only after he'd been up in the cloud for so long. No clouds present. Oh, and by the way, when the cloud turns up and the voice comes from heaven, instead of chapter after chapter after chapter of all that stuff in the Torah, you get five Aramaic words. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Zip. Now just, you don't get a Torah, you get him. You call the following. Who's going to imagine that? <laughs> well, then there's Jesus' intention to die. It's really clear that he's no innocent victim. He's planning this. That's a little hard to get used to. He is orchestrating his death on Passover. He's planning it. When they try to get him early, he gets away. comes into Jerusalem, and he's been clear about this before he gets there, by the way. He said to his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. He sets his face like Flint to do that. First of all, what kind of Jewish person is going to do that in the first century? Who plans to go to Jerusalem to die on Passover? As though somehow his death has significance, not just for Israel, but for the entire world. Again, it's because we've been Christians for so long, we just don't realise how utterly bizarre and otherworldly this is. Now, there is some stories. There is a story in the Maccabees about some Jewish brothers about 150 years earlier who were suffering terrible torture from uh, the Seleucid soldiers that were working with Antiochus Epiphanes. And as they're being put through these most terrible tortures, and it's really graphic, um, their prayer is, oh God, may our death suffice to bring an end to the punishment that Israel has so richly deserved. Now what they mean by that is, we deserve this punishment. What's happening to us is, yep, but please let your anger stop with us. Can our deaths be the last one? That is not the same as Jesus. He's not doing that, right? There's something bigger going on here that has to do not just with God's anger being assuaged, but something radically shifting in sin being dealt with forever. Hmm. And the beginning of a new covenant, that language is there in that meal as well. Now, that's his intention. He goes to Jerusalem. Well, then he has this entry who has an entry like that in antiquity? Warriors, great politicians, right? Caesar turns up and you don't welcome him, you're in serious trouble. Okay. Alexander once came to the city of Tyre and said, I want to worship in your temple. Sounds like a reasonable request. They said, not in your life, buddy, because they knew what that meant. He was asking for the keys of the city, so they resisted. So having refused his first coming, Alexander has a second coming and this time destroys the city and sells all the survivors into slavery. That's what these entries are about. They're that serious. So here's Jesus styling himself in this entry language, but he's not riding a great war horse. He's riding a donkey that looks very much like a Davidic king. Right? 
But he doesn't do what they're expecting David to do, which would be to come in with their army and completely deal with all of the bad guys in Jerusalem. That's what the Psalms of Solomon talk about. There's a whole bunch of texts that point in that. He doesn't do that. In fact, it doesn't actually look like a triumph in many respects. And then it dissolves almost as soon as it begins. There's no march of the crowds to Pilate's palace right, or camping outside Ottawa or Toronto or anything like that. None of that goes on. Okay? No chariots parked with trumpets blaring or whatever it is you choose to do. Okay? Um, don't go to Caiaphas' place. They don't even go to the temple. There's no violence. There's no protest. There's no kind of... It just starts and it's done. What? Ever thought about that? Who does that? Then he gets to the temple and the prophets speak about the temple's problems and Jesus quotes Jeremiah and Isaiah and then he actually carries out this action. Well, who really does that kind of thing? What prophet have you read about who does that in Israel's temple? And what he's announcing is not as purification but destruction actually. So it's often called the cleansing of the temple. That's probably a misnomer. It's an action in the temple announcing its destruction, which is immediately after he comes out of the temple, he says, see this, not one stone left upon another. That's not a cleansing. And then he talks about the stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief stone of the building. What does that mean in terms of the temple? Sounds a little bit like what he's doing when he heals people and forgives them outside of the temple precincts. You don't need that anymore. I'm now the only one that you need. Who does that in the first century? Hmm. Well, I think if you put this all together, the way Jesus teaches his mighty deeds, these various acts, they're all part of, I think, this single, deeply coherent and integrated sense of personal authority. This astonishing sense of who he actually is and not just to say stuff but it happens right this is serious authority well we're not done yet we're almost there but not quite there's the last supper israel has been celebrating this for centuries carefully curated perhaps with some confirming additions to the meaning of different elements of the meal and what does jesus say okay guys two things Uh, From now on, the meal's about me. Oh, and I'm changing the menu. (laughs) Who's going to do that? Who would even conceive of that as a possibility in the first century? Once again, it's all about himself. And it's the only feast he institutes. And after that, his followers, as far as we know, no longer make a big deal about celebrating Passover, Tabernacles, Yom Kippur, any of that. This is the one feast and you do it as often as you will. I do get in a bit of trouble here because I know there's church calendars that people love, but the stunning thing about Jesus is he seems to say, you know what, the calendar no longer defines you, my meal does. All those Jewish feasts, they're all agricultural related. And it's like Jesus says, no, you are now people of the spirit. You're not tied to seasons. Something bigger than that's going on, which is just interesting, I should think. All right, well, the last one, and here we are. Thank you, Luke, his death. And that brings us to... Next slide, the resurrection. Okay. Now, again, this is just, we're so used to it, but really it's just plain odd. What's it doing there? Greeks don't want their bodies back. Their bodies are a tomb, prison. 
So the word body, soma, sounds like the word for tomb, sama, soma, sama. And so the Pythagoreans, Mr. Golden Thigh Triangle again, uh, they started this huge battle between the body and the soul. Uh, and can I say, if you bought into that, that the soul and body are at war, um, you're not really a Christian. You're doing something else. You're being a wonderful Hellenist, but that's not a Christian view. Because we're all about integrating that stuff. You can't be human without having the spirit of God within you. So we try to work out how we split those things apart. I think Paul's pulling back together what the ancient world has said, oh no, the soul's what's getting saved, your body's not worth it. Well, no, the Greeks don't want their bodies back. That's the tomb. They want to be floating up there, twinkle, twinkle, little Socrates. How do you wonder what you are? Right up there kind of amongst the stars. And... Well, what about the Jews? How many of the disciples go, it's on the third day. Let's go see if something happened. You ever thought about that? Who do, no one does that, right? And they don't need to. Because they know nothing's changed. That's why the women go back to the tomb to finish off what they didn't get done because of Passover. Right? Want to go back and fix things, make them just right. right? So the body's taken care of. Right? It's just a very ordinary day. Right? And, uh, you know, it's like... Off they go chatting, you got this, I've got that, you know, I've got that, and da da, making your hand. Oh, the stone. What about the stone? It's just a wonderful, humorous human moment, right? And then they turn up and they notice the stone's moved, and it's the first indication that the world has changed forever. And there's no laser lights, right? There's no Lady Gaga or whoever it is singing, none of that, right? It's just, um, just ordinary dust in the armpit of the Roman Empire right? and the stones roll back and the hair should be standing up on the back of your neck because that's the first sign that things have seriously gone sideways. Okay? They're not ready for this because they know there was no such thing as an individual resurrection. We believe that because it happened to Jesus. But for them, Resurrection was part of a whole deal that included the renewal of creation. One good reason to take care of the environment, get on the side of the kingdom of God, okay? It's not being green, it's being Christian. The defeat of the Romans, the resurrection at least of all the righteous, a messianic king in a restored Jerusalem with all the exiles returning and God's very presence. And did I mention the Romans got defeated as well? I think I did. Now, none of that's happened. Right? That's why they don't go, look. Right? Hasn't happened. Again, it's inconceivable. No, no Jewish person is going to invent this kind of resurrection, passing through death and coming out the other side without all this other stuff happening at the same time. It's, it's inconceivable that a Jewish author would come up with this. And when he does turn up, I mean, it's a wonderful moment. There's just mind boggled, joy beyond all joy, wonder beyond all wonder, right? You actually touch him. Right? And, you know, there's no kind of force field like June going on around him or anything like that. It's just there he is and, uh, and you know, they give him something to eat and it doesn't fall through his sandals and, right? <laughs> and then he's gone. Right? And Paul has no idea. He calls it, you have a spiritual body. What are those two things that there are? Man, you put those two together, fried ice, okay? Um, you can be touched, doesn't kind of radiate, right? everyday body, but can disappear at will and reappear. What do you do with that? Where was that in Jewish expectation? 
Well, that's our conclusion. Thank you, last slide. Okay. Um, you see what we've got here? It's not as if all these different things are happening with all kinds of different individual rabbis. Rabbi Tarfon is feeding people in the desert. Rabbi Ben Simeon is healing a few blind people. Right? Rabbi Ben Moses is out there occasionally turning water into wine or something. No, 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 no. There's this desert landscape of people trying to keep Torah as best they can. And in the middle of that, this explodes. And so much of it is not rational. So much of it is not what people expected. How do we explain that? Well, that's my last slide now and we're done. Uh, I can see no other reasonable explanation based on what we know, looking at these documents and how people behave and what the first century was expecting. Something very much like this must have happened. Now, if that's true, <laughs> if that's true, everything is different. Okay. It's time to bet the farm on the Lord Jesus. Do you understand that expression? Uh, I sometimes have students who'll say, I just feel like the Lord's absent from my life. And then I'll say, okay, hang on a minute, let's talk about this. Have you jumped out of the plane without a parachute yet? Have you so committed yourself to the Lord Jesus that there's no turning back? Because if you haven't done that, that just might explain why it's actually pretty dull and boring right now. You haven't really given yourself completely and utterly to him. Which is what the Stoics and the Christians both knew you had to do if you were going to find the truth of what they both believed. There's no half measures, brothers and sisters. It's all in. No partials. And that okay? Can you hear that? But I'll tell you what, who else can give you eternal life? I can hardly wait to taste coffee in the world to come. <laughs> Not to mention the bread and the cheese and a few other interesting things that might be there as well. Okay, well, question time. Thank you. Thank you for your patience. We've got maybe, what, 20 minutes, I suppose, or 20, 15, Luke's here. So. There you go. What do you think about that? It's pretty amazing stuff, I reckon. Don't get all clap in, but not me. No. Ah, the seat. Thank you. Why don't you sit there and I'll sit over here. Okay. You look better in the light. So. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Why don't we just take a moment and stand together, stretch our legs. Good. And, um, yeah. oh. oh, thank you. I'll move this. Great. Okay. No one's going to pray or anything. You can sit down when you're ready. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, Rick, and thanks everybody for your questions. So, uh, we've got a bunch here, and I'm going to try and prioritize them, and uh, specifically to the ones that were asked tonight, if that's, right. if that's okay. And some sure. of the questions are great; they're they're specific to tonight, and some of them I think range from the past uh, couple of sessions as well. Right. So, if your question isn't answered um, in the way you'd like it answered, uh, you can always listen back to the other talks, as Rick mentioned, because I think some of the things are touched on. But the first one um, is specific, but I think helpful for when we're reading our Bibles. Uh, someone's asking, which of Jesus' promises were exclusively for the 12, or uh, maybe we could say for the people of the time, 
and which are for us today, and maybe I would add, how, how do we know which, which, which is which? Oh, <laughs> that's a really simple question. <laughs> well, I mean, to answer that, you have to go look at every one of his sayings, and I think look at the context. So I think the idea of uh, when Jesus commands the 12 or then the 70 or 72 in Luke to go out and not to take bags with them and that kind of thing, uh, that probably, I think, is explicit only to them in that he knows the time is short, so he's got to send out them out to cover the bases. And what it means is when they go into a village, they can't stay unless they're accepted. They're just totally dependent on being accepted by the villagers. And if the villagers don't accept them, then that's a sign that they've rejected the gospel and that's why they shake the dust off their feet against that town. It's no longer considered Jewish in that they've rejected the gospel. So that thing, I don't know that that's then something we should be doing. Uh, a little more tricky, and this is more controversial, I think when Jesus is talking to the 11 after Judas has gone in John and he says, the spirit will guide you into all truth, I think that's actually a word for the 11. Uh, and what it's about is saying, if you've read Mark, you'll realise that these guys hardly got what was going on. Right? And even in John, you'll see references to, and later on the disciples understood, or later on they remembered. And that's what Jesus says, right? The Spirit will bring these things to your remembrance. I don't think in that setting um, that applies to everyone. I think specifically it has to do with you can trust the Gospels that are born of the eyewitness testimony of those who are with me because the Spirit's going to guide them and lead them into all truth. But I would not apply that to anyone else beyond them and Paul. Paul had said, I've actually seen Jesus, so he gets that, but I don't think that applies to everyone. Now, that's debated. You know, there are, uh, but that's the kind of thing I do. I just be thinking through each of those instances and asking what appears to be a historically unique moment given that setting and what doesn't. By the way, that doesn't mean you can't ask the, the Holy Spirit to guide you. It just means the answers you get are not going to have the same authority and truth value as you know, the apostles. And the early church recognised that. It's why only their stuff is part of the canon and what will never be added to. They're the ones who saw him and with him, right? It's just that being present to Jesus physically really mattered. So that's what I do there. Thank you. Uh, next question is, what would be your response to others uh, who say, Jesus is what God has to say, but when they say that, they mean love, no judgment, accepting, supporting all behaviors, and never asking people to really commit to Jesus? What, What's your thinking on that? Well, I guess I'll be asking, and, and who is this Jesus you're following? Where did you get him from? <laughs> Not to be cheeky, but, um, well, maybe I am. But, uh, given all the stuff we've spoken about, you don't pick and choose. We saw what Jesus said to the Pharisees who picked and choose which bits they wanted from the Scriptures and didn't. And he just, your hearts are far from God. So... Uh, I simply have to trust that if anyone knows about love, it's Jesus. If anyone knows about what it means to be healed and restored, it's him. Uh, and I'm not going to muck about with what he has to say. And I, it, It's not as if I'm saying this, right? I just, my job is to point people to Jesus and to show people as accurately as I can what he was saying. And he's the one who heals people and does all of this stuff. So if I say it, who cares? But if he says it, that means a little bit more. So I'd want to say, no, you've got to... You have to understand if he's Yahweh among us, he gets to define what that means. He defines what love is, not me. Okay. And it's that old battle, you know, it goes right back to the garden. Who gets to say 
what the knowledge of good and evil is all about. That's the huge debate from the very, very beginning. And the answer is Yahweh is the creator and he knows. And we know he, lo we know he loves us because he gave himself for us, right? But we also know that he calls us to change. And, uh, you know, and we all have our different things we have to change on. So. I know that's confrontational, but, but it was in Jesus' day too. Well, that's why they crucified him. Um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Is uh, that all right? It's kind of a bit <laughs> silent out there. but. <laughs> uh, sometimes we hear about inaccuracies um, in the Gospels, uh, historical inaccuracies, things like that. So Luke's birth narrative, Mary and Joseph yeah. going down to Bethlehem, it's been questioned. Mm -hmm. What about the census? What about the strangest of the kind of census? Yeah. Um, you know, things like, isn't it bizarre that why are they going to ancestral towns? It seems to make no sense. If you want to yeah, tax yeah. people, wouldn't you want them to yeah. be in the region they're in? Like, how do we make sense of that? Quirinius, yeah. governor of Syria, difference of time. How do we deal with that if Luke's this historian? Yeah. Then that's yeah. a bit problematic, is it? Or uh, That's a good question. And um, it's one that needs to be addressed, and people have talked about it, right? And again, we've lost so much stuff from the ancient world. It's really hard to know what was going on. And, uh, but I'm happy to deal with that one, and I'll come back to it. But just, I didn't talk about that in the presentation. What I'm after is the things they attribute to Jesus and where they came from. That's really my, my primary interest in all of this. How they do history, uh, that's, that's another thing that you have to deal with in terms of just the way the first century operates and what access people had to what information. Uh, people have argued that there was a census that was begun sometime earlier, but it takes a long time to finish and it kind of slowly catches up. You know, it's, uh, there are answers for that if you want to read them in the technical commentaries on Luke. They'll have people discuss that and tell you what they think the options are. Same thing with the star and all of that, you know, in Matthew. And, and people have thought about it. But that's actually not been my concern. It's an important question, but it's not really been part of what I'm after in this session. Right. These sessions. So. Not to dismiss it, but I'm just paying attention to the stuff we're dealing with. And, and because I've been talking about history, it is important, but it would take a longer discussion than what we have now. So, so just Sorry. to get a bit closer to that, mm. you use a particular phrase that might be new to some of us, which okay. is the phrase, something very much like what yeah. we see written down must yeah. have happened. Whereas yeah. many times as Christians, we've been taught, this is what happened, yeah. this is exactly yeah. what Jesus said. So okay. as a historian, can you, yeah. Yeah. can you separate those two things for us and yeah. just help yeah. us to see the nuance and the difference between those two okay. things? Yep, I think I can. So just, it's a great question, thank you. So um, you'll notice in lots of the, particularly in what we call the synoptic gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and I'll put them in that order because I think Mark came first, but you tend to get these short stories, uh, which work because that's the standard way you educate people in antiquity. They mostly learn from short paragraphs with that's how they learn to write, they copy them and they learn wisdom from that. So you get these stories and uh, you know, there'll be, it'll be Sabbath, there'll be a synagogue and there'll be, you know, there's an Irishman and a Scotsman, an Englishman kind of thing. And then there's a punchline at the end. And you'll notice there's a bit of variation around the setting and that's okay because that's not what people are really focusing on. Okay? They're giving you some idea of what's going on, but they're not there to try and describe exactly what colour the roses were on this particular day. Oh, well, you know, they've got that, right? But it is important that the people are there, so you get those guys, your Irishmen, whatever. And then you get the punchline. Now, you know, you might have some friends who are great at telling jokes and then they forget the punchline. <laughs> okay. um, 
if you look at those punchlines over and over again, they're bangity bang bang bang, bangity bang bang bang, right? And it looks like they've just been designed for memorization. So it seems like they're functioning in that way, in terms of those stories. Now, when I say something very much like this, I'm just allowing for the fact that we are getting that kind of interpretive account of what went on. They're not thinking about the kind of precision you might want from a scientific experiment that would be totally unreal in their world. So by that language, I'm saying, look, there might have been some variation in the details. There might have been some extra people there that weren't mentioned. They might have ignored some others. They might have, you know, that, right? Uh, you're not getting, see, even with a newsreel, someone puts the camera somewhere and that camera only sees what's in front of it. It won't see what's outside. And because the angle is gonna block you seeing some other things that are actually there as well. All right, so it's just, it's the nature of human beings relating events. That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to say they're untrustworthy. I'm just trying to say, don't put expectations on them that are not appropriate to a first century document or even to any human observation. Does that help a little? I think so. Um, another one for you. What place do women have in the Gospels? Uh, are the Gospels special in ancient writing when it comes to women? Luke certainly is. Uh, and Luke's, as you know, written to the Greco-Roman world, and he really is keen on letting everyone know that everyone gets in. So you know, he's got men and women doing the same kinds of things. So you've got Elizabeth and Mary, they've got this kind of prophetic prayer going on. You see that running through. Uh, you've got Mary and Martha, we talked about them. So Luke definitely has this strong emphasis writing in his Greco-Roman world about the role of women. Uh, I don't think it's such an issue in Mark. Mark's shorter and he's not trying to do the Luke thing. He can't do what he wants to do and do all the other stuff as well. You just have to remember that these are, I mean, they're longer than Greco-Roman biographies, but they're much shorter than anything that we would have. So they really have to be incredibly precise about what they put in. And okay. Uh, I, I think it's staggering that by the time you get to Acts, um, as the Holy Spirit comes upon people, that's when things really begin to change. Again, that's why I'm a Pentecostal or a charismatic. It's, um, so while the Gospels don't necessarily do that, I think the first person that ever explained Romans to a congregation was a woman. There's something wonderfully ironic about that, given the way Romans can function in certain traditions of the church. It's likely a woman. And um, Paul speaks of a woman junior who's numbered amongst the apostles, so she's a serious player. I think it's only later on as the church becomes more conservative. So to become a Christian, a little bit from the Gospels, but to become a Christian in the first century is a really radical move especially if you're a Greco-Roman, you're gonna get all kinds of hostility. But the people who do that, they're really in it. Right? They've chosen, they don't all last the distance. Some of them end up giving up because it's too tough. But by the second and third century, more and more people are becoming Christians and guess what happens? Right? They bring with them their conservatism. You can see that in churches, right? Start with a church where there's life and the next thing that happens is a lot of malcontents from other churches where it hasn't worked, they come to this one, right? And they bring all of that dissatisfaction, all of that kind of unhealthy conservative, it all comes in with them. And they say, you know, right? And I think you can see that happen in the second and third century where you know, women eventually just get marginalized from a lot of this, but certainly in, in the gospel of Luke, he's making that point because he's speaking to a world in which women really don't have much standing at all in terms of the Greco-Roman world.
Um, and they make the same mistakes as men do, by the way. They're not saints. Right? They're spoken about just like men, and they can be brilliant, and they can be bad. Um, I think we touched on this in a question from the last session, but because it was asked today, I want to ask, ask it again. Um, you spoke about not adding or taking away from Scripture. Someone's asking when they compare Bible translations, it appears oh. there's some translations that go perilously close to doing that. Revelation 21 talks about that. So they're just asking for, yeah. for comments on that, of which we know you have many, but what oh. would be helpful tonight? Well, you know, look, the first thing is, um, well, Eugene Peterson, right? I was blessed to know him at Regent, right? And uh, he wrote the message. And uh, Eugene, he made a choice to become a pastor. He'd been offered a PhD with one of the world's most outstanding Hebrew scholars. And he loved languages. He really cared about it. But he felt, no, the call was not to be in a musty office with books. And he loved all that academic stuff. You know. But no, he felt called to be a pastor. So when you're reading the message, you need to know the guy that's behind that understands Hebrew and knows what's going on. But I don't think Eugene would ever say this is a Bible for study. Right? It's, it's one that kind of puts the language in ways that might be accessible to you. But if you really want to do serious study with it, you don't preach from the message. We would, I'm pretty sure he'd say that. Okay. Um, so I think in terms of translations, you have to work out what you're after. Right? If you feel like you're just trying to get a sense of something because the technical thing you've got in front of you doesn't quite work, then by all means, right? Yeah, you know, get a Bible that, that's kind of, the English is more what you're used to. But just bear in mind that that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to make the language more accessible. And to do that, it's going to have to cut some corners. That, and that's okay. Just, we're cutting corners. Be happy with that, right? But if you want to do serious work, then you go with the kinds of translations where there's been a lot of work put into it. I personally would avoid, I'd avoid translations by individuals. I just think there's too much going on in scripture for one person to have all the knowledge that's necessary to make judgments about grammar and syntax. And, but there are a bunch of goodies which I've mentioned and you know, across the spectrum. NIV, kind of a more evangelical ESV is more reformed. NRSV is kind of more in the middle. That okay? They've all got their place. Just make sure they're used in the right place, I think is all I'd say. Um, just touching on, um, we touched on the, landed on the resurrection. Um, mm. Beginnings are important. Can you talk a little bit about the similarities and differences at the end of the Gospels as literary works and what to pay attention to oh. in each? I know that's a big question, but <laughs> there is some stark differences. It's a great between. question. <laughs> Maybe start with Mark and then, I don't know. Yeah, so the ending of Mark is an issue for people, right? Because it just seems to finish up so bluntly, right? And they told no one because they were afraid. What's <laughs> a great ending. Uh, well, you know, you're not the first to recognise that. There's a longer ending, but the Greek in that ending really looks very different from the Greek in the rest of Mark. It, that kind of makes you suspect that something's gone on, that the person who wrote that ending wasn't actually Mark. Okay. Uh, so what do you do with that ending? Well, it's interesting. I worked on Mark, and Mark begins by appealing to Isaiah. Right? So one of the first questions you'd ask is, okay, he's appealing to Isaiah, which part? Oh, it's the last third, Isaiah 40 through 66. Okay. Is there anything about being afraid in those chapters? Yes, there is. Ah, unlike any other prophet, in those few chapters, over and over again, Altira, sorry, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, in the context of that make straight in the desert the way for our God. 
So I think what Mark's saying at the end of this is these women initially responded just like Israel did when they blew the return from exile with Babylon. Now, of course, if they'd never told anyone, you wouldn't have had Mark. They must have told people. But I think Mark's a bit of a warning saying, it's going to cost you to follow Jesus. But don't be afraid. He's conquered death. Don't be afraid. Okay? And so that's all. Now, with Matthew, um, Matthew begins with Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. Who's David? He's the king to whom all the nations come. And Abraham, what do you know about him? Well, he's meant to be a blessing to the nations. And how does, it, how does Matthew finish? They to go off and do what? Preach the gospel to all nations. Right? Jesus is their king and Abraham's the father of the nations. So I think Matthew is a great missionary document. Uh, Luke got away for the spirit. Well, gee, I mean, how can you read Luke and not get that one? <laughs> it's all about the spirit coming, not about the timing. That's the very next thing you get in Acts chapter 1, right? You've got the last days, guys. When's it going to happen? What's the time? Jesus says, forget it. Your job is to be filled with the spirit. Oh, I wish we'd listen to that as Pentecostals. <laughs> that's what we're on about, not the end times. But that's, that's my view. Uh, and then in John, um, John's interesting because it's got this kind of double ending to it. So it depends where you finish with John. But one of the great moments, I think, is Thomas. Poor guy gets a lot of stick, but he's the first person in the scriptures who makes the truly Christian confession, my Yahweh and my Elohim. That, that's stunning. He's the first one that comes up with that. But, you know, then the question about John living and the others and, and then blessed are those who have not seen that kind of thing. So anyway, that's a very brief, probably terribly misleading. <laughs> the endings are different and they're fascinating. How about that? Yeah, yeah. So final question from, from me. Uh, oh, okay. which is You saved the best till last. No, not at all. <laughs> Torpedo in the water. No, it's okay. Not at all. Um, <laughs> so you, you deeply love scripture, deeply love Jesus, yeah. and you deeply love us as friends and family and brothers and yeah. sisters. So as you imagine us going forward from these times together and engaging with the Gospels, what are your hopes for us as we engage with the Gospels day to day, week to week, as brothers and sisters? Well, um, there are four of these things about the one whom we own. Now, own is not possession. That's old King James language to do with, I recognize you as my liege lord, that kind of thing. I, I just get to know them. The Holy Spirit gave us four. No rabbi gets one. He must think they're pretty important. So um, just really get into them. Right? Let them become who you are. Just learn who Jesus is by doing that. And uh, um, the other thing is they're true. These guys are saying we saw this. Right? And if that's the case, then... So I, I, I hope you'll just become obsessive lovers of the Lord. Okay? I was talking to someone the other day and they were giving advice to their daughter about what man they should marry and they'd said look the thing that matters most of all is this man loves God even more than you and I say that that's a great recipe for a marriage <laughs> and can I say um, that's the best thing for a church to love Jesus I love you guys but I love him more and I think that's what makes my love safer for you <laughs> if I can put it that way this is going to be a little you know uh, I think the problem with the Roman church 
is it loved the church. And nowhere in the New Testament are we told to love the church. We're told to love our brothers and sisters. And I think that's a very significant difference. The church can become a faceless institution. We're not told to love that. I'm told to love my brothers and sisters as individuals. And I think if the church had done that, we might not have had this terrible thing that the Gospels had to go through. And you know, they're not the only ones, right? We've all got our own. I think Jesus is absolutely right. And, uh, and the lawyer was too in Luke, right? Um, you love God first with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And then we love our neighbours as ourselves. And the best way to learn about what it means to love God is to learn about who Jesus is. Anyway, that's... I think he's amazing and I know you do too, so... Um, okay, final, final follow-up question for oh, me. We have another. one minute left. Okay, here we go. If, um, if going into this spring, summer, if we were to, to pick up uh, a gospel, oh. what, what should we pick up and read? If we've never read it before, if we want to be uh, okay. kindled again and expired. Each of us as individuals. Oh, well, gee, it really depends on where you're coming from. So uh, if you're uh, kind of a a rank Gentile and you want to learn that you're in this and God cares about you, go to Luke. Right. He'll do that for you. Do you feel like an outsider and you want to yep. know you're an insider? you feel like a bit of an outsider and it's not your thing, well done, go to Luke. Uh, if you want a sense of um, the mystery of who Jesus is, now you have to understand when the New Testament uses mystery, it's not doing Agatha Christie. It's not a problem to be solved. You'll hear people sometimes talk about the mystery of the Eucharist. That's not the New Testament use of mystery. Mystery means something you haven't expected, but now you know. That's what mystery means in the New Testament. Is that okay? Not something to be solved, something unexpected that you now know. Well, that's what John's on about. If you want to know the mystery in the New Testament sense of Jesus, read John, where you get this incredible thing going on with Jesus being Yahweh. Uh, if you want something just to learn from that's really neatly structured and do that for you, go to Matthew. Matthew's just brilliant. That's why he's the most popular gospel by far. Just wonderfully organised groups of fives and sevens and patterns. And, and you get pretty much all of Mark plus a bunch of extra stuff. Uh, and if you kind of care about, you know, uh, what's the word I'm after here? If you care about the least, go for Mark because he, he kind of dropped out in the second century because you had Matthew. But Mark's a wonderful gospel that's really right on about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. He's really making a statement. If you've come to follow Jesus because you're in for a easy ride, you've come to the wrong shop. This is cross-bearing. Oh, and by the way, it's the only way to life. So take your pick. Easy ride and death or cross-bearing and eternal life. There are two options. And Mark's really clear on that one. So. I happen to love Mark. Okay. Forgive this incredibly reductive moment, but oh. <laughs> Mark, discipleship? <laughs> Yeah. Fair to say? Mm -hmm. Matthew, if you're to choose one or two words for Matthew. Um, well, Matthew is about discipleship too, right? And so they're all about discipleship, actually. Uh, I think Matthew is, what do Jewish Christians do with this Jewish Jesus that somehow involves the nations and not Torah? That's partly him. Luke, we already know, we talked about that a lot. And I think if I describe John, Jesus John? is the I am among us. I am among us. Who fulfills all of Israel's feasts. Uh, Mark is the new Exodus, yes, thank you. Yeah. I keep talking about that, I'm kind of embarrassed. No, it's really good. Okay. Thank you. Oh, well, who knows? We might all do some more of this later on, and I don't know, it's up to you, whatever. Mm -hmm. so, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Luke. Thank you for coming. Thanks, everybody.
going to just invite you to stand as we close. And Dave's going to come. He opened us up a few weeks ago uh, with prayer and just an introduction. We're going to ask Dave to to close close our evening. Yeah. Let's uh, let's also say thanks to Luke and to Ricky and to Rick for uh, leading us along these few weeks. Wonderful. So good, and thanks you you for participating and uh, enriching your life with good good stuff. So let's pray together. God, uh, we sense your life here tonight. Uh, we sense the work of your Holy Spirit here tonight, uh, drawing us closer to uh, the only one, Jesus, Yahweh. We thank you that you are who you say you are. And we pray in these uh, days ahead that we would more and more discover uh, what you say about yourself and uh, what you say about us and what you say about community. Lord, uh, we love you. We find uh, in you that which we find in no other place and within no other person. And we pray this uh, coming year we would fall more and more in love with you and also uh, through that enriched life and love uh, be such a blessing to so many other people. Uh, thank you for Luke and Rick and uh, Ricky. Uh, thank you for uh, their good uh, ministry amongst us and bless them. Uh, may they feel uh, fulfilled in their service amongst us these last three weeks. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Blessings upon all of you. Thank you.